Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Picard and Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org slash litigation. Today, we delve into a topic essential to every litigator's success, which is communication skills. Effective communication lies at the heart of building strong cases, establishing rapport with clients, and persuading judges and juries. In this episode, we'll uncover the key elements that make up excellent communication skills for litigators, discussing strategies to be better communicators in the courtroom, in our workplace, and in our lives. To discuss this topic, I'm pleased to introduce our special guest, Nan Jostin, who is the principal of Rapid Evolution LLC. As a thought partner, trusted advisor, and executive coach, Nan helps build capacity through better utilization and development of their most valuable resource, which is human talent. Nan has had an interesting career, getting her start as a chemical engineer at Procter & Gamble, becoming the director of marketing for a privately held floral wire service, joining Habitat for Humanity to start their earthquake recovery program, and as a lawyer at Pharrell LeBron and Martell, where she led the firm's professional development program. Nan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Dave. It's a treat to be with you today. So let's just start from the very beginning, and can you help explain how effective communication and relationship building can impact a lawyer's career trajectory? Absolutely. I think it's a critical question, and I'm glad you asked it, because simply put, I don't believe you can become a trusted advisor to your clients or colleagues without strong communication skills. The ability to listen for understanding, to be a successful, zealous advocate in your written and verbal communications and to quickly build new relationships are all important attributes of successful, happy attorneys. It's not enough to be a legal savant in your particular area of the law. You also have to have a way to readily share that knowledge and put it to beneficial use to be of value, and that means you have to be able to communicate effectively. You also asked about relationship building, and if COVID taught us nothing else, it's that relationships really do matter for our personal well-being as well as our career success. Whether it's creating an adequate professional relationship with opposing counsel, the court staff, your senior partners, your business partners or customers, or the newest attorney to join your office, having positive, productive relationships makes you a more efficient, effective lawyer, delivering results on time, under budget, and with less stress. And who doesn't want that? I also think people should never forget that reputations are paramount in the legal profession. In addition to the results you deliver, Your reputation is built through all the interactions you have with people over time. People will never forget how you have treated them. And if your law practice involves you developing your own practice and attracting clients to your door, this all goes double for you. Well, completely agree. And it's interesting you talk about being a trusted advisor because I think that's something that is not taught in law school, really not taught as uh, young lawyers coming up into the profession, at least at, at some of the larger law firms that I've been at. 
they teach you how to solve a legal problem, maybe how to write a memo or how to do legal research, but how to be number one trusted, but then how to be an advisor, not only kind of solving problems is, is something that's just not taught. It's true. And I think more law schools are starting to teach that as we get a stronger focus on professional skill building within the profession. There's been an awful lot of research on what makes for better lawyers and what do clients find satisfying about the lawyers they work with. And it's generally not about their legal knowledge because most lawyers have a pretty solid grasp of the legal issues and how to proceed, but it's how they work with people that matters an awful lot. And I think law schools are getting a little better at that, but most of it comes on the job after you've gotten out and are starting working in the profession. Or like me, I started working as a chemical engineer before I became an attorney. And I learned a lot during my time at Procter & Gamble about communication and business and how things work. But for all of us, we have to find ways to strengthen those communication muscles because those are skills that are critical to being successful in this profession. Well, and I'm glad you brought up your earlier career. And I'm fascinated to find out more because you went through I guess, two very different education programs. One is, you know, becoming an engineer, then you became a lawyer, and then you probably had some very interesting kind of professional development programs kind of within, you know, Procter & Gamble, for example. So tell us more about that and kind of, you know, what what you learned and what you kind of brought from that experience into what you do now. I've had a a great career. It it wasn't what I expected when I started off in college and, and graduated, but it's been very, very satisfying in many different ways. The great part about starting my career at Procter & Gamble is that the company was a promote from within organization. And as a result, all the talent had to be grown internally. Then we didn't have laterals who came in in any particular area. And so there was a great focus on leadership training and development. And we were evaluated in part on our ability to be good leaders in addition to managing the aspects of our business and the actual technical skills of whatever area we were in. So it was really surprising to me when I graduated from law school and went into private practice to realize how little work was put into training attorneys in leadership and management. And so it's almost more like, well, it's your turn in the barrel to be the practice group leader, go to it. And as a result, you end up with opportunities to do things, I think, more efficiently and effectively and enjoyably by helping people gain some skills that they just don't know because they haven't seen them in action and haven't been trained in them. And so that's where I think it was a great advantage for me to have had those opportunities in the corporate world before I became an attorney in private practice. And it led me to becoming more involved in the professional development program at my firm because I saw ways that we could help accelerate the onboarding of of our younger lawyers and how we could be more effective at things like giving feedback and performance reviews and planning career development opportunities in terms of assignments. All of those things work to help improve attorney skills, attorney satisfaction, and of course, ultimately client satisfaction. Well, and that's interesting because I think a lot of uh, firms and attorneys kind of leave that leave that leadership training to bar associations. I know, you know, the ABA litigation section does a great job kind of in, in, in that area, but other bar associations as well. Just curious as to kind of what you did at your firm to kind of develop the training on the leadership side, because, you know, as you said, 
lawyers are leaders. And we actually had an episode with Tony West concerning that very topic. And you see lawyers in so many different leadership areas, politics, obviously at, at law firms and bar associations, different type of organizations. But you don't really don't see specific training at law firms. So we'd love to kind of hear more about you know what you did um, at, at your firm uh, to advance leadership. Sure. And I also think lawyers are leaders outside of law firm settings as well. I mean, Tony's a great example in terms of his business career, but we have opportunities to lead in all kinds of different aspects and judges, courtrooms, you know, look around, lawyers are, are pretty much everywhere doing all kinds of things, nonprofit leadership. So the thing that I think is most interesting about that question is that I got my start in the ABA section as the mentoring co-chair, subcommittee co-chair for the Women Advocate Committee. And we needed to write some articles for a mentoring-focused newsletter. And I had some ideas, and I had done some research on different ways of advancing mentoring. And those got published in, in our newsletter. And a few years later, I was asked, my firm, one of my partners came to me and said, I want to talk to you about your ideas around mentoring circles. And I looked at him, and I thought, well, how do you even know that I have ideas about mentoring circles. And he had found my articles and wanted to pick my brain about what I thought of how we could do a better job of mentoring attorneys. And I mean, you don't have to ask me twice to talk about that. I, I was off to the races. And it was something that became a, a focus area for the firm at that time. And I was asked to help lead the way we changed that because I had the ideas and some experience in other settings that they wanted to bring into the law firm. And that really got me more involved. I was a partner on our professional development committee and ended up uh, being the partner co-chair for that committee and working with a lot of different consultants that we brought in on different projects and was asked several times, well, gee, why don't you think about doing this kind of work? And I said, well, I still like trying cases. I don't want to do that kind of work. But then I got to the point where I had tried enough cases and I did want to do that sort of work, which is what led to what I do now for my professional satisfaction. And so I think it's a question of looking at what you're interested in and passionate about and getting involved in those things. I love that. So in your experience as a, a coach and, and as your experience as, as a um, law firm leader, what are some of the kind of common mistakes that you see lawyers, especially young lawyers make when it comes to communicating with clients? And this is kind of internal or external clients and building relationships, because I see a lot of mistakes. I'm just curious as to, as to what you've seen. Well, I think as a practical matter, you always need to find out what do your clients or customers want, focus on that and be succinct. And I think the most common mistake lawyers can make in that way is that they aren't succinct and don't necessarily deliver the desired outcome, which isn't the particular result, but focusing on what kind of answer to a question am I supposed to be getting towards. One of my law partners once asked me to look into a fairly arcane question that I knew would take a fair amount of time because the answer wasn't obvious. And I suggested another attorney do it. I'll just call him Bill for sake of example, I knew Bill had time available to dig into this and was a really good researcher. And I was really busy, so I thought that was a great solution. And the partner said, no, he wanted me to do it instead. And I said, well, why? Uh, and he said, this is a really naughty issue. I need a good recommendation of how we should proceed because it won't be obvious. And Bill is a complexifier and not a simplifier. And I've held on to that and used that example many times because the goal 
is to be the simplifier, distill down the complex as best you can. It's always going to be hard. The easy questions are already answered. You know, the only questions we get are the hard questions, right? So figuring out when you're communicating, what is it that I'm trying to do here and how do I simplify it and not complexify it and make it harder for the client to decide what, what direction to go? So I think that's my, my most critical advice is to listen, focus on the problem, be succinct and practical. And again, that's something that you necessarily get taught in law school. You're, you're taught how to, to write a memo and that sort of thing. But, and how do you kind of gain that skill, I guess, through what experience um, you have a, a partner looking over your shoulder, kind of uh, correcting uh, what you're doing. But it, it's interesting that, that you talk about that conversation. And it's something that I, when I talk about mentoring or discuss mentoring with folks, I wonder, did that partner ever talk to Bill about that problem? Because I think a lot of what happens at law firms is a lot of things are kind of mysteries and you don't really know um, <laughs> what you're doing wrong necessarily. I wonder if if that conversation was had um, because maybe it's something that Bill didn't even know what was happening. Yeah, that's a longer story for a, a different podcast. I think Bill had unique skills that the firm was trying to leverage in that area because he had background as a research librarian. And so uh, it didn't necessarily translate well into the how do we guide the client in the difficult decision they need to make. But I do think that it's absolutely incumbent upon senior lawyers to give good feedback to uh, attorneys at all levels, right? No matter what, whether you're just starting out or farther along in your career where there are things that you need to learn and know and do better, you can't do that if you don't get good, targeted, timely feedback. And so I make it a point when I'm working with people um, to be sure that they're getting that kind of feedback and to help the attorneys that need to deliver the feedback realize that good feedback is a gift and it's not something to be shied away from because without it, we can't improve. And all of us can be better at just about everything we do. And particularly when there's a gap that's significant, it's, it's really important that the lawyer take the time to share that information. I also think you asked an earlier question, how do you learn how to be more practical, focused on the client, that sort of thing? Part of it is by observation. And there's less and less of that these days, which is one of the challenges in building relationships when we're not working in the same space as often as we once did. How do you see other lawyers doing it that are, are considered to be strong at what they do? Uh, listening to how they answer questions that the client presents on a phone call. How do they respond to that? What do they do next? What's their follow-up look like? What do their written communications look like? How do they handle emails or chats, texts, that kind of thing? Figuring out by osmosis a little bit, in addition to getting specific skill-building training, is one of the ways that you can quickly see how the really skilled practitioners do it. Love that answer because I think so many young lawyers and I, this was a problem that I had as a young lawyer, which is you're on a phone call with a client and the partner is kind of taking the lead. As a young lawyer, you're focused on the legal issue, but you also need to be focused on kind of the technique and the relationship building that's going on between the partner and the client so you can learn how to do that. So it's really important for our young lawyer listeners to kind of get that, which is knowing not only the legal issues, but kind of the technique behind that relationship building is critical as well. 
And I speak mostly here about the communication skills, but you're right. The legal issues, you've got to have that. And that's what most of us have come out of law school knowing how to get and are typically good at. Most most people don't have a problem figuring out the legal side of it. And if you do, that's a different issue. And that's a showstopper. But once yep. once you have that, I mean, we all know... We can all think of attorneys who, when asked a question, can expound at length on the finer points of the legal issue without ever coming to the point. So the, the great lawyers are the ones who know the finer issues of the law, but figure out how to, how to hone their advice and sharpen it and make it practical and useful for their customer, whether that's a, a business partner in corporate America, whether that's you know, a client, whether that's a senior partner in a law firm. That's what we really want to be good at. That's how you become the trusted advisor. So I, I think a lot of us talk about networking and building relationships within the legal community being very important because getting referrals and that sort of thing. Can you give us some tips on how to effectively do that, how to network, build relationships to expand um, our professional opportunities? Well, one thing, the starting point is you've got to be involved do more than just your legal work so that you come into contact with others who will get to know who you are, know what's important to you and how you get things done. And I've already given the example of how I became involved in the litigation section and how that helped me within my own law firm, unbeknownst to me in terms of how that would play out down the road. I think the section is a great place to network and expand opportunities. Beyond the section, or including the section, I always encourage attorneys to figure out what they like to do and leverage that. Find the things that you're passionate about and and get engaged. I think that what's really important about effective networking and building relationships, once you decide where you want to go, is be deliberate and put some time into figuring out in advance who are you looking to have a stronger relationship with and why. What's in it for the other person? What do you have to offer them? Sometimes it's as simple as demonstrating a sincere interest in wanting to understand who they are and what's important to them. Ask good questions, really listen to their responses, and use that information to drive your next steps in growing the relationship. Whether that's to grow your practice or because you want to have a broader network of support or resources or referrals, There's all kinds of uh, objectives, but once you figure out what your objectives are and who you need to be focused on, get out there and do it. If you haven't seen this, haven't experienced it yourself, I'd also encourage, just as in communications internally, observe how lawyers you think are successful do this. Where are those lawyers going? What are they doing? Who do they talk to? Ask if you can tag along and see them in action if it's something they're doing, let's say, at a conference. One of my mentoring circles once, we decided that our younger attorneys were uncomfortable going to a bar association event because they felt like they didn't know anybody and they were uncomfortable in that kind of a setting. It wasn't something they had experience with. And so we decided we would go as a team, and there were four of us in the circle with a mentoring partner, and that we would work in teams and have a plan on how we were going to work the room and compare notes and take turns introducing each other to people we knew or or walking up and introducing ourselves to people we didn't know and starting those conversations. And then afterwards, we'd go out for a glass of wine and debrief on how it went and what we learned. And so making yourself available to help other people in those settings is one way that you can be a great mentor and help new lawyers learn more about how to network and build relationships in that type of a setting, which can be 
difficult for those who haven't experienced it before. And you also mentioned kind of getting involved in bar association work, which is can mean a lot of different things. And and I know you know within the section um, you you had various uh, positions. You were you were a managing director, and just curious as to kind of you know do you have tips for folks who are interested in getting involved and kind of you know moving up and 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 having different positions within you know really any organization, but specifically a bar association. I think the key is to. Find a way to get involved, see what's needed, volunteer to do it, and then most importantly, actually do it. Because I can't tell you how many times somebody said, oh, I would love to do that, I want to get more involved, and I say, great, here's an opportunity, would you be interested in that? And they say, sure. And then whatever they committed to do doesn't happen, or they, you know, they just flake out and say, oh, sorry, I couldn't, I had a brief due, and one thing and another. And so... You make a name for yourself and a reputation for yourself by living up to your commitments, particularly when they're volunteer, because we all know how stressful and difficult a law practice can be. And so I don't minimize the challenge of, I've got an emergency brief due. We've all been there and done that. But figuring out a way to carve out some time to commit and do whatever it is you say you've done, you make a big impression on the leaders of the organization. And it's not hard to start moving up when you get involved and actually deliver on commitments. The other thing I would say is just a practical matter is it's great to get involved in programming because then you have a chance to talk to people who might be speakers and help work out the conversation, the topics, that sort of thing in your field of law. And it's a great way to expand your network pretty quickly and become better known. Yeah, I mean... Obviously, this podcast has done you know wonders for me in, in terms of like meeting people, having great conversations, and every organization that has a conference is looking for folks to uh, not only help at the conference, but organize the conference, get speakers, be a moderator, possibly. So lots of great opportunities um, within organizations to do exactly uh, what you mentioned. True. And you're a great example of that. You were an early person. I remember. I can't remember how long we've known each other, but I know that when we asked you if you were interested in doing things, your answer was typically yes, and you got it done. And as I said, those reputations live on for a very, very long time. And so build a reputation as somebody who's interested, easy to work with, and gets things done, and more and more opportunities come your way. So let's Switch topics a little bit and talk about trial communications. Are there any um, specific communication strategies or techniques uh, that litigators can employ better uh, that will help us to excel during trials? Absolutely. I think it's a great question. All of these skills play out in trial in spades. Trials are stressful. Excellent trial attorneys deliver peak performance throughout. And so the first technique I advise during trial is to have really solid stress management well in hand. Setting aside time for some exercise and mindfulness work every day is critical, along with good nutrition and hopefully reasonable sleep. And you might think, well, that's got nothing to do with communication skills, but it has everything to do with you being able to show up as your whole self and in a reasonable way and not be overwhelmed by the stress of the event. Now is the time when the work you did early on to build a professional relationship with opposing counsel pays off. And we haven't talked about that yet, but I think it's important when you take on a new matter as a litigator that you call and introduce yourself to opposing counsel if you don't already know each other and um, lay out that you're, you're hopeful to work together effectively and professionally for the good of your clients to resolve the dispute. 
And when you get to trial, as you know, there's all kinds of requirements for you to work cooperatively with opposing counsel on short notice schedules. So being honest and meeting your commitments is paramount. And whether it's with your client or the judge, the court staff, opposing counsel, the trial team, you've got to have an even keel and not lose uh, your composure. An important, important point, again, is to listen. Always, always listen to what the witness is saying, what the judge is saying. Pause before you speak. Make sure you're listening to understand and not already forming your rebuttal. Say please and thank you. And a quick practical tip, if you're feeling nervous as you get ready to speak, often for younger attorneys standing up at trial is a highly stressful moment, and you feel anxious and you're not comfortable, you've got a ton of adrenaline coursing through your body. So what you want to do is get rid of some of that adrenaline, and the best way to do that is to get a grip on something. Like Say you're still seated at, at the council table. You can grip the arm of your chair or you can curl your toes in your shoes, or you could do that if you're standing up, or you could hang on to the edge of the podium and grip it hard to release some of that tension in your body. It will make it so much easier for you to speak and not have a sense that you're gasping for air. So do what you can, take some deep breaths, take your time and pause, and you'll be fine. You also mentioned dealing with opposing counsel, and I think a lot of people don't realize that you know a lot of referrals actually can come from opposing counsel, folks that um, you were against with at trial who thought you did a good job and thought that you know you're a person that they could work with and that they would trust their clients with. So again, just super important to to have those relationships, you know, with opposing counsel. And the other thing I would say is fascinatingly enough, kind of talking about the section. So part of the the application process for being a leader within the section is that you have to put a lot of referrals down. People um, for, you know, um, they have a nominating committee that, and they actually call a lot of these people. And the thing that I didn't get looking at the application was they actually ask you to put down some opposing counsel for the nominating committee to call, which makes a lot of sense because, they want to make sure that you know you're a person that's professional and has integrity and and again someone that you can work with. So opposing counsel it, it's so critical people don't really understand how important it is to develop those relationships and of course there's going to be you know people that kind of go off the rails and people you can't work with but as a whole it's just super important wouldn't you agree? Well certainly and even if the other side goes off the rails it's important that you don't you don't lose your temper, no matter what opposing counsel does. I was going to make the same point as you, that some of my best referrals have come from opposing counsel who saw my lawyering and were impressed and thought you know, they were conflicted out of a matter, perhaps. They, they couldn't take it, and they sent it my way. So make sure that opposing counsel sees your best lawyering as well. It's not just at trial. Most cases never get that far. So even how you manage discovery and all of the work that's involved in scheduling depositions and and the like, be a professional, use your best communication skills, and it will pay off for you. It will get you a better result with your client sooner at less cost to your client, almost certainly. And so you want to do your best in that relationship, in all relationships, but it certainly matters. And I think it's great that the section has looked to opposing counsel 
referrals as they select senior leaders because it does matter. In the end, we're all the same profession, all trying to do the right thing by our clients. But sometimes uh, folks are difficult. We have difficult clients, uh, challenging personalities with opposing counsel. What are some ways that we can effectively manage and communicate uh, with those folks when they're being difficult? I think the most important thing for me that's worked is to remember that it's not personal. I try to take it as a challenge to figure out how do I still work effectively with somebody that's this difficult. And I also use some of those stress management tools I talked about earlier. But I think it's all part of growing your skills as an attorney. You're going to have clients that are challenging and difficult. It's not just opposing counsel. And the thing that I've learned has been, again, by observation. I've known some incredible trial lawyers who never seem annoyed by any client or opposing counsel, no matter how outrageous the demands might have gotten. They do their best. They're still energized by the thrill of the chase, as it were, and they shake it off. And I think there's a lot of learning for all of us is that you you can only do your best relative to how you communicate and you can only control what you're going to do. And so you make the decision about how you want to behave professionally and the rest of it is you know, making sure you're, you're communicating clearly and effectively and that you've documented what you need to document. But the rest of it is just hang in there and keep going and not let it get to you and not take away from your enjoyment of your practice of the law. Well, Nan, I love this conversation. Uh, we're coming to the end of our time together. Uh, can you offer any kind of final advice or key takeaways for litigators looking to improve our communication skills and uh, build meaningful relationships in our careers? Have fun. Have fun. Devote the time needed to build relationships. Be deliberate about building your muscle in communications. Know that the better you get at it, the more you will enjoy what you do. And practice really does make perfect. The last piece would be, if you're not sure how it's going, ask for feedback and then act on it. That will help advance your skills that much faster. But again, it's all about getting better at what we love to do and enjoying it. So have a good time. Love that advice. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Nan Jostin, principal of Rapid Evolution LLC. Thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks, Dave. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. I'm pleased to welcome back Latasha Ellis to the show. Latasha is a litigator in the Washington, D.C. office of Hunt and Andrews Kurth, focusing on insurance coverage cases. Welcome back to the show, Latasha. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Of course. And I understand you're going to be giving us tips about mediation today. So what's your quick tip? Yes, uh, I've actually will be participating in my fourth mediation this month. So <laughs> mediations are top of mind for me right now. Um, and so since I was preparing for my mediation this Friday, I thought that I would share some tips for a successful mediation. So I think whether you are a plaintiff or defendant engaged in litigation or if you're someone faced with litigation which has not yet been filed, which is very common, you have probably considered mediating your dispute. It's important to remember that when we talk about mediation, it's an attempt to bring a settlement or compromise between the parties through an objective intervention of a neutral party. 
But I think what sometimes is forgotten is that mediation requires the consent of both parties to the dispute, and in most cases is usually voluntary. So mediation, of course, is not to be confused with arbitration, which is an alternative to a trial where there is a selected neutral who generally decides your case and you are usually bound by that decision. So obviously with mediation, unless both parties to a mediation feel that they will receive some sort of benefit from the mediation, it may not be successful. It may not reach an agreement, which is why some folks think that certain contracts that may require mediation prior to filing a lawsuit can be problematic or present challenges. But in any event, there are a few things that I have learned that I think parties can do to increase their client's chance of a successful outcome to a mediation. I think the first, the most probably, I would say the most important tip is attitude adjustment. I think that a mediation where one of the parties insists on gaining a pound of flesh from the opposition will certainly fail. Um, And so the first thing to do is to manage your client's expectations by approaching the mediation with an attitude of exploring the possibilities of reaching a reasonable result. So the first tip is adjusting your attitude. The second tip is to prepare. You have to explore the strengths and weaknesses of your case fully understanding all aspects of your case and why it would be beneficial to take advantage of the opportunity to settle the case outside of the courtroom. The third tip is being flexible. It's important to develop options for mutual gain. And by mutual gain, this may not necessarily be options that would give your clients everything that your client wants, but gives your client everything that they need. I think that's a more realistic approach and just being open to the idea that at least your client being open to the idea that they may not receive 100 cents on the dollar for all of their damages, or if there's a non-monetary result that is being sought, that just being open to non-conventional solutions. And I think that just because the client or even you as a lawyer have planned on a particular type of resolution being, you know, if something is different is suggested from the mediator, I think it's important to not reject it out hand but just to consider it. So being flexible. And the final tip I have is really just being patient. Often it's really the passage of time or in some instances, the furnishing of additional information that can bring the parties back together in a matter which maybe appeared hopeless during the first meeting, but might readily be resolved at a second meeting. Patience is such a virtue in mediation. I mean, I, I, can think of so many of my mediations that didn't settle in that first meeting, didn't even settle weeks after, but in some cases settled months after, but it all really can be credited to that first mediation meeting. Most courts urge or require litigants to go through a mediation or settlement conference before they will agree to set the matter for a trial. So lawyers should really encourage their clients to welcome the opportunity to participate in mediation, because if it is successful, it will reduce expenses and can conclude the litigation process early. So by adjusting your attitude, 
preparing carefully and being flexible and patient, I think lawyers can greatly increase their chances of a successful mediation um, and whether that occurs immediately, instantaneously, or months later, um, success is success. Great. Well, excellent tips, Latasha. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Of course. Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like for me to answer on an upcoming show, you can contact me at dscrivenyoung at pecklaw.com, P-E-C-K-L-A-W, and connect with me on social. I'm at Attorney DSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting you in person at one of our next litigation section events. So please make plans to join us at the Women in Litigation Joint CLE Conference in San Diego, taking place November 1st through the 3rd. Join us as we highlight women leading for success in the courtroom, in the judiciary, and in the profession. Programming will focus on trial skills, insurance litigation, products liability litigation, and securities litigation. You can connect with leading litigators, judges, and in-house counsel from around the country. To find out more and for registration information, please go to ambar.org slash litigate, H-E-R, that's litigate her. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating over at Spotify is incredibly helpful as well. And finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make the show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thank you, Rich, for all of your hard work. Thanks also goes out to my fellow co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. We'll be right back.